0: Figures podcast behind the numbers with the restaurant scientists. Within this podcast, we take an in depth look into the economics of the food service and restaurant industry. The show will examine the economic disparities and inequalities impacting black food service professionals and restaurateurs. We will support and empower black food service professionals and restaurateurs by providing opportunities for increased visibility, access to capital, and problem solving. No, sit down, you're too kind, you're too kind. Good afternoon. How's everyone doing today? My name is Jason Wallace, and I am the restaurant scientist. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes. Here we take an in-depth look at the economics of the food service and restaurant industry. And today I'm so proud and honored to have friend, chef, historian, Therese. Nelson in the building. Let's give her a round of
1: applause.
0: No problem, no problem. So to my audience out there, just so you know, Teresa is the founder of the Black Culinary History. And you know she's an expert on all things, historical in terms of food, the travelings of enslaved Africans around the world, and how food has impacted our lives in America. Um, and, you know, as we, as you know, my topics always revolve around the state of blacks in the food service industry. So welcome to the show, Therese.
1: Thanks again, Jason. This is my second time here, so I'm definitely excited to, to be in conversation with you
0: always. Absolutely. Absolutely. And because you're, you have such a plethora of knowledge and information that... Uh, there's there's no legitimate show out there that can't, that they won't have you on consistently because there's so many topics and as you know as you know and you you know you and I've spoken before um, you know it's so in depth each conversation each question you know could be its own show mm-hmm. um, so again I want to thank you for coming to the show and you know without any further ado let's just jump right in it so sure. again. The podcast is about taking an in-depth look at the economics of the current food service industry. I kind of like to take the historical approach by speaking to people like you and, and really understanding where we've come from from a food service point of view. As a professional chef myself, I know I'm standing on the shoulders of many legendary uh, mm. chefs, male, female, you know, going back to you know the 14, 1500s. Um, And then, you know, before it was the $890 billion billion industry that it is now, you know, with, you know, in New York State alone, you got over 40,000 restaurants, uh, eating and drinking establishments. We're not talking about schools and colleges and universities and stadiums and and all of the other contract feeding Mm -hmm. and even military establishments. So this is a big business. This is a huge business. And, you know, I feel like as black food service professionals, you know, we're not at the table enough. Uh, We clearly do not have a large enough slice of this, you know, $900 billion pie uh, in terms of the overall economic impact of the food service ecosystem. And quite frankly, I'm I'm damn mad about it, you know, so that's why Mm -hmm. I create this show. That's why I bring people on like yourself so that we can address these issues, because we need these types of platforms to talk about, um, you know, the, the the disparities, the economic disparities between the haves and the have nots. Um mm, and see, so say
1: that part.
0: <laughs> so, you know, I get a you know, my my feathers are ruffled on a regular basis, but you know, we have a lot of work to continue to do. We've done a lot of work, you and myself as well and others as well. Uh, but you know, we we can't, you know, we we can't stop this thing. So I for me, I need you to educate myself as well as my my listeners. Uh I know part of what you do as a historian. Um there's a historical component and then I'm assuming there's a journalism component of, you know, like some investigative research behind the numbers and the conditions. Um uh, sure. can you can you tell us what your approach is and how you balance and straddle those two those two worlds?
1: Sure. Um so it was probably about ten years ago. Um I was sitting at Dillard in a room with uh, Joe Randall, maybe not t- quite 10 years, probably more like six or seven at this point. But he was he was being you know, in this room thinking about, about talking about um, the food in New Orleans in particular, and sort of the black hand in that particular part.
0: And, and just just so you know, she's, she's talking about the legendary chef Joseph Randall. Let's give Legend. Chef Randall, he was my mentor. He's, That's right. I don't know, everybody's into a problem. Solid. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes so. every, anybody who's ever
1: come into contact with Joe Randall, get some wisdom, just sprinkle onto them. And Absolutely. We went in this room listening to so many historians. We were listening to journalists, folks. I mean, just disparate disciplines across mm-hmm. um, the can of New Orleans foodways. And he was listening to this room, and not a chef was on any of the panels or in the conversation. And he sort of, you know, like he does, like sit in Sentinel, he sort of looked back and said, you know, y'all got to get some degrees. Y'all, like y'all in terms of generationally talking collectively about Black chefs. um, That was sort of, he was uh, sort of thinking about our generation. He was saying, y'all need to get some degrees. Y'all have to have the language, the context to be more integral to these conversations. And it was an interesting thing to be charged with because I had been around for about, Five years at that point and it was this way in which he was sort of deputizing me us collectively to one be better stewards of our sort of cultural history but also to sort of develop a practice that would make us inherently valuable in this growing space of food and culture right mm-hmm. looking at coney schools like caa starting to invest in and in sort of interrogating our food waste or looking at museums like um, mofat but also mainstream museums like um uh, Museum of African Diaspora in, in San Francisco, um, Schoenberg Center, et cetera. Lots of, music, lots of spaces, cultural spaces that see that saw this curve happening um, where we we're going to have to think more critically about Black food waste.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think a lot about that moment because there is no real training to do culinary history work. It's a subset of most historic disciplines that gets overlooked it gets conflated with anthropology in a lot of ways.
2: Mm.
1: Um, mm. And, I mean, you, the label you gave, I, I don't want to consider myself a historian. I consider myself a curious chef who <laughs> looks to uh, developed spaces to find answers to critical questions we're not asking. That's, that said, I mean, nice. think about Renée Grosner, She was a colonial, a colonial anthropologist. I think about the coincidence we have now, Jessica Harris, Michael Twitty's, um, these are the folks that I'm listening to looking and looking after. Um, but the work I do, yeah, is certainly asking the same kinds of questions as starting as um The writing I do, I think, is the thing that maybe puts the work I do in a journalistic standpoint in terms mm-hmm. of digestion. Mm-hmm. Journalists, I think, have the power of crossing disciplines and using sort of tactics from other disciplines to, to sort of share questions, answers to questions that they have. The curiosity of journalists um, combined with the practices of historians, I think makes for really interesting, um, interesting content. So Absolutely. that's kind of where my work sits So
0: Absolutely. So let's back up a little bit. Chef Randall inspired you. Tell uh, tell my listeners about your background, what type of education you're, you you know, in your, in your work profession.
1: Sure. Well, I did not take his, 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 um, this is advice in terms of going to school, because honestly, there aren't the, the I'm excited for young people I meet today mm-hmm. who are going to be ready in five or 10 years to mm-hmm. um, further their, like sort of education in the sort of historical cultural spaces, because right now there aren't degrees that exist. Um, No historian that I know of who does work in the culinary history space has a degree because there isn't one yet.
2: Exactly. Um, Exactly.
1: But I'm a chef, so my degrees are are in hospitality and food service from Johnson Wales. Um, I've been a chef for about 20 years. My site's been around since 2008. Um, And I would say the way I sort of fill my toolbox practice-wise is doing the work of a PhD program on my own. So you you want to go and get a PhD in whatever, his <laughs> public history, et cetera. You essentially are uh, committing yourself to four to seven years of reading and re- right. research to sort of flesh out um, this original idea that you have um, to fortify it with information and to digest it into a tangible dissertation. Right. And for me, that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I'm I'm working on a book project right now that is essentially the dissertation of the last, you know, 10 years of research. What does it mean to be a Black chef in America? What is the legacy that we have, mm-hmm. that we stand on the shoulders of? Mm-hmm. What are the questions that you ask of American history through the lens of chefs, through the lens of sort of the original American chef, which I, in my opinion, are Black and brown bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you, you know, some of the things that I know you I know you want to get into, but certainly um that consume a lot of the research I do is really about taking the questions we ask about it, the things that we say about ourselves and the, the fact that our hands and little sort of built in American cuisine. Mm-hmm. It's a very lofty thing to say, and we never ask. We never take that idea further sure our hands were in that pot mm-hmm. but in what context how like because we we sort of leave a lot of answers on the table by sort of deferring to the fact that the ways in which traditional research exists we don't have access to we don't have written history right we don't have cookbooks that tell us who we are or who we were we don't have like we don't this because our History was taken from us in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. The evidence of our place, our space in 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 this sort of history Mm -hmm. um, is often in between the lines. I think about Sadia Hartman a lot. Talks about the the afterlife of slavery and the fact that doing work as a historian, um, looking at Black life, especially um, during enslavement, is really about looking between the lines. Um, Looking between records mm-hmm. to find where we should have been but are left out of conspicuously.
0: Right. Absolutely. Um,
1: yeah. Absolutely.
0: So. No. Absolutely. So and, and then again, having said that, um, you know, make the connection for us between American cuisines, plural, mm-hmm. uh, and the African diaspora, like you sure. know. So. Talk to me, and it, you know the, the the second part of that question would be um, moving right into the current American menus that we see, and the mm-hmm. direct connection between you know the transatlantic slave trade and sure. American cuisine as we know it, which is extremely regional, broken sure. down you know by by region.
1: Sure. So I always get sort of frustrated when we sort of talk about um, the diaspora, though so it's not a space that is or or a site for black agency like we look at it and we think about it relative to sort of where we can see ourselves in the terms of Amer- sort of american context um and we sort of look at the ingredients or look at sort of techniques and don't really think about the fact that we had a whole rich we have a whole rich though like j- like the history of the world starts in africa right <laughs> and so we look at we think about black life always in american context beginning with slavery and it's a it's, it's it's true but it's also only half of the story right mm-hmm. this rich life this this life of context and culture and language and food um existed before we were stolen and brought here mm-hmm. um also slavery in the context of america is only half the story because slavery in the Caribbean is really kind of was a test case for slavery in America. So, so much of what we miss when we don't really think diasporically intentionally is that we miss evidence right there in the Caribbean um, that tells us so much about how it evolved itself um, on the sort of continental United States. That said, I think it's important to sort of think about the f- <laughs> you you brought up a word a, a idea earlier that is really important to me um the context of restaurants is really a relatively new idea um new. in terms of like 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 launch like in terms of like a trajectory yep. restaurants are new i mean america is a baby country relative to the rest of the world and restaurants themselves are really only an affect of the last 200 years if that um the, the sites for spaces of food service were really plantation kitchens. They were the derivative businesses from plantation kitchens. So the you think about somebody like a Hercules Posey or James Hammonds who were cooking for presidents and dignitaries. And um, but the plantation kitchens were spaces where um communities would come and eat. So it wasn't just um the family that you would have been serving, but the community you also serve. So if you were a chef who was, you know, literally from whole cow to presented beef dish, everything from that cow, the towel, the, I don't know, everything, the every, oh, milk, all those derivative products, you were responsible for um, maintaining, create a sort of um, crafting, creating, candles, all these derivative products, you would have had the the technical ability to sort of make. And the cottage business of um, sort of selling those wares to the rest of the community Mm -hmm. would have been 100% part of your life, part of your business. And so I think we sort of misrepresent or underestimate the expertise and acumen of enslaved cooks because they weren't just, it wasn't just um, sort of this mindless servitude, right? It was mm-hmm. folks who had multiple talents, who were responsible for training other sh- other cooks. Um, so the plantation just become some of the first cooking schools that we have in this country. I mean, Jane Timmons, Monticello, Jane Timmons in Monticello after he gets back from, um from France is mm-hmm. literally the first cooking school um mm-hmm. in this country. And so I just there's there are ways in which we we have to ask better questions about what enslaved life would have looked like. Certainly would have been gen- like regional, it would have been um different generationally. Um, and I think the site of or the sort of examples closest that closest resemble um, the DNA of our current food service industry really only kind of show themselves in the late 1800s. I mean, late 1700s. So, you're talking about, um, you know, sort of thinking about like 1765 when Hemmings is coming back from France. Um, he's that's that's this is the first time that we've seen actual cooks, cooktops, cook stoves. Mm-hmm. Um, we go from hearth cooking to actual um like ranges we're talking about um just much ingredients um, techniques like ice creams and um custard making and all these other th- these ideas that didn't exist in this country before then are brought back through the hands and, and the knowledge of chefs like him so i just think that they we have to think about it relative to the generation we're talking about
0: absolutely um Absolutely. So let's let's again let's go back. I know that was those that, that was a two part question, but let's sure. just go back and now describe what was a life like in an enslaved chef. I'm I'm gonna call them chefs because that's what they were, right? Mm-hmm. Um sure. and you know, if we said, okay, we you know again, we talked numbers, but you know, six you know, forty six thousand plantations, you know. Um and what does that kitchen look like? I mean, we walk Shoot. into the kitchen now as a chef. I got an exhaust hood. I got a fire suppression system. I have refrigerations. I got flat burners, charbroilers. That was not the case. And they were putting out 12, 13, 14 course elaborate meals, Shoot. catering, you know, and everything from cold appetizers to hot appetizers to entrees to cheese. Shoot. Um, and even even the beverages and the style of service and the, the plates, the forks,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, you know. So, and like, that was all of us. I don't like. We need some applause right here because we don't <laughs> truly understand how bad these chefs were, both male sure. and female, and most of them were female, uh, mm-hmm. right? And the conditions that they worked in. Um, sure. So let's like. Let's take a little deep dive into sure. the that 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 visual.
1: Sure. Two things. One, I want to say um, I, anybody who's seriously interested in this content, I want you to read Michael Twitty's Cook and Jane, also um Kelly Franz Deet's um, Bound to the Fire. Both of those books really give really beautiful and thoughtful and thorough um, examinations of what the life of an essay cook would have been like. But I'll say this. Um I think about it would have been, say, 1785. I'm talking about Virginia, you know, at least a decade plus after revolution, revolution, um, America is trying to find its own identity. And Jefferson is in France. He takes James with him. He's learning at the seat of Versailles. He's... Um, learn he's free there um, which also Hammonds becomes like the most patriotic act i've ever experienced my, my most patriotic story in american history is james Hammonds coming back um to the u.s when he was really free um in france but they bring back these cooktops he has been cooking and thinking about and finding technique all this time in france and he comes back and you so right before James um, comes back with this hearth, with this um, sort of cooking range and his new newfangled technique is going to be, and you can, if you ever get a chance to go and visit Monticello, please do. Those kitchens are, was unearthed by the likes of Lenny Sorensen, who's one of our greatest culinary historians. Um, but right in plain sight, right, you, you see the evidence or the, the physical manifestation of what the kitchen would look like. You're talking about a space that's, just, you know, maybe, you know, 500 feet. You're talking about literally a square open hearth, six feet by six feet, um, a metal grate that you and a hook that you be able to hang a cast iron pot in and put a cast iron, say, pan or um sort of flat top essentially on but that's it you're talking about bacon bread you're talking about roasted meat you're talking about everything you're doing hot being done on literally mm. an open flame mm. um o- over coals or fire but literally over open open heart cooking you have to gauge those temperatures those mm-hmm. um, timings through just mothering and being able to to know sounds and mm. sort of <laughs> timing. Mm-hmm um literally from kc to kc is you know literally chopping wood to build your fire Mm -hmm. having it be ready and able to sustain the entire day Mm -hmm. um when james comes back with the heart though so you're thinking about like you know 1785 86 um all of a sudden you're looking at the ability to do fine sauce work in easier more efficient ways you're talking about um excuse me thinking about you know Bringing back, bringing ideas around like frozen desserts, like multi-sensory desserts. You're talking about, um, you know, the ability of of, 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 of a cooktop. Now I means you can do intricate sugar work.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: I think <laughs> that to me, that's a really. You talk about like the kinetic, like historical point of colonial evolution. That like it's kind of before James, after James. Um, Because then Monticello becomes this really important um, epicenter for this new style. And Mm -hmm. so plantation owners are sending their cooks from all over the country to go to Monticello to import the same cook ranges to sort of um, live up to and be equal to um, what's happening down in Virginia. I think... The reason I was I said earlier, mm-hmm. the part about really sort of getting hyper specific about what areas we're talking about is mm-hmm. that um regionality is important, right? Mm-hmm. Um then enslaved people um our plantations are about land. So in the north, you wouldn't have been so much um a full plantation as much as it would have been um enslaved people doing work that no one else wanted to do. So mm-hmm. you would have had enslaved cooks who were operating in in, in a relatively urban context Mm -hmm. so you got cooks who are in philadelphia Mm -hmm. who you know thinking about i mean james and hercules are both in philadelphia but Mm -hmm. you know what is what does it look like to be in say south carolina where everything from you know the animals you grow to the fruit and vegetables that you are producing you're also responsible for right. um, that labor versus the North where that port, those, that those not parts coming from the South, from, you know, farther West and you sort of having to um, sort of fabricate Fabric, more butchered. than mm-hmm. produce. So mm-hmm. I think it's just mm-hmm. regionality and era are super right. important when we're talking about what that life would look like, Absolutely. but really in all contexts, especially before we really understood that this that the food and beverage industry was valuable when white folks didn't want to do this work when it was only us we were really responsible for the whole ecosystem right um and it's i think that that's, those are the areas those are the points that um i think to me reframe a kind of agency yep. um to black cooks black um food entrepreneurs because they looked i mean you, you again the whole ecosystem we right. existed. In the whole process.
0: Absolutely. And let me just share some numbers with my listeners. So, even though COVID has impacted the food service and hospitality industry negatively, you still had in 2021, you still had $799 billion in annual sales with over 90,000 eating and drinking establishments in the country and 14 million employees right so we're not even as 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 chef said we're not the, the entire ecosystem we're not talking about all the equipment all of the ovens and grills and deep fryers that, that were sold to those restaurants we're not talking about all of the flour the sugar the salt the potatoes that you know all of the other commodities that you know in terms of the distribution of food plastic paper uh plates mm-hmm. glasses silverware you know, just the entire, you know, food service ecosystem. And again, why are we having this discussion? Because are we at this table? Are we really at the table? Are we really benefiting financially, economically from an industry that literally was we created? Right. We 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 we, you know, we well, we didn't create we, we own and operated it um, and established the standard. Um this,
1: this is something I'm sitting with too recently, and it's, it's partly because of the book, but really I sit with it because there is this kind of, and I've been trying to work it out over the last five, six years via you know, archives and some other areas. I've just been wanting somebody to finally <clears throat> lead me to the right place because I think that there's a really important fact, this, this idea that we don't talk about enough about when did it go from a time where we were, <clears throat> the bulk of, the majority of, the um, when we were the workforce in this mm-hmm. industry,
2: mm-hmm.
1: when does the shift happen where all of a sudden we, we're no longer part of <clears throat> this industry you know, we sort of a guest? Yeah. we sort of, you know, not quintessentially American chefs. right so it just, it's, it's, and I posit that it's probably during the civil rights era. <clears throat> I think about, the, A.J. Miller wrote a really good book, um, The President's Kitchen Cabinet. Mm-hmm. And it sort of chronicles again, this goes back to something that's earlier about the work of historians being disparate detective work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You, the reason we know so much about the numbers of enslavement, the reason we can sort of posit something about what lifeful to look like is not because we anybody took particular care or record um, of what that experience was. Certainly abolitionists would have hurt would have taken firsthand accounts, but we really don't have a lot of examples of firsthand, you know, sort of intentional record of what enslaved life would look like. What we do have, and the reason we know a lot about, say, Monticello is because Jefferson wrote. And so we sort of read in his papers, his diaries, et cetera, and can find the bits and pieces to tell us something that we can draw like larger inference about. All of that said, the Kitchen Cabinet book is really interesting because through the lens of the White House where records are meticulous, we can sort of distill what Sort of colonial life would look like the rest of the country. If this is the sort of example um, that the rest of the country is drawn from, mm-hmm. we can kind of infer a lot.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not really. It's really only. It's not until the 1960s, when John F. Kennedy becomes president, that the full staff, the responsibility of, you know, the cooking in the White House, is all African American. Definitely segregated, definitely you know complicated, definitely problematic. But we see that like the food service, the sort of the service of um, everybody from the first family to foreign dignitaries is done by black bodies. When Kennedy starts becomes president, all of a sudden um, there's this European aesthetic that becomes much more palatable and valuable. Yeah. Um, the idea of fine cuisine in this way that um, sort of puts the um, the United States in this position to lead in some way globally. Try to start leading some way globally in terms of aesthetic becomes um attractive and so you start to import chefs right you, like intentionally J one yeah. visas start Absolutely. around the same era. Absolutely. Um, you you think about somebody like a Jacques Pepin. I love Jacques Pepin so much because he's one of the only chefs from this generation who is adamant about talking about how when he came to his country um that it was black chefs, black cooks who were pro- Primary to teaching him about American cuisine and, and sort of seeing who was doing the real labor and who, were the, who was the, the bulk of the workforce that he was in, in, in sort of confronted with. And he, we, see, we see, we know that there's a, a sort of concerted effort to sort of change the demographic of that workforce, but Jacket comes here in sort of the late 50s, early 60s. And so there's something to be said for this, this sort of era being a really particular Sort of turning point in the way how what we judge as a, as a sort of American uh, food service. So that said, I just think that there's something inherently problematic <clears throat> about misremembering history in that way. Absolutely, That's literally half a generation ago. So, is, are people still alive who remember <laughs> time. Yeah. Um, hey. And so, what? Do, well, how are we forgetting it? How are we? Your point about the pieces of the pie is tricky because, like. Yeah. W- it, in what context who who does it benefit to change the demographic of um who you know even if, is it 1977
0: is, is sorry when it became a you know a, a profession by the labor department that part yeah that
1: part 77 yeah i mean i'm i've been i'm doing work with the cia right now yeah i want to get into the archives because fernand metz got some things to answer for but i'm interested yeah, in what that effort looks like, right? Yeah. There's a really there's a very specific um shift in using the language of chef. Because yep. if you Jacques came in, he was a domestic worker yeah, in terms yeah. of the government's eyes, Absolutely.
0: Right? What does it mean
1: to change and, and sort of professionalize yep. um an industry that had always been Absolutely.
0: And I, I can speak to that a little bit because in the 60s, I mean, you basically had Howard Johnson. You had family style restaurants and you had chains. You had McDonald's, right. White Castle, Howard That's Johnson's. Right. right. Those were families. There was no sophistication. There was no, you know, appetizer, entrees, dessert, no a la carte, no no finesse needed in terms of cooking. The hotels were different. Right. So the hotels is where you would find in the 60s a chef Joe Randall. You know what I mean? And, you know, not having the title, not having to pay to to support that title, but but doing all of the work. Right. So now and then those that were chefs were raising kids that did not want they didn't want their kids to be chefs or cooks. right. Right. So that's your mid 60s. And at that point, you know, the restaurant industry was really just fast food and, uh, and family-style restaurants for the most part. Then you get into the 70s, and, and then that's when, you know, you have the Galloping Gourmet, and you have Julia Childs and some of the, you know, the early pioneers of restaurant, I mean, of television, quote-unquote, chefs and cooking. And um, that's why
1: Chef Joe says it a lot. He talks about how he was one, he was a generation where, you know, all of his people, all his, none of his, his parents didn't want him to yeah. go into this industry. Nobody would. And so, yes, I think that there's something to be said for yeah. Very real, once you have options, if this was, I mean, literally hospitality jobs were passed down generationally yep. um, in, yep. in these families. You're talking about caterers who, you know, upward mobility in the food service industry was a site for, I mean, we see examples of millionaires being made in catering, yep. millionaires being made in, in, so these derivative businesses around food service. Right, right. And that's beautiful, but um, the, the the children, um, of you know, generationally, of these of these families, of these um, folks who have always been in food service, finally getting the ability to send kids to medical school, or right. to You know, to to law kids, colleges, yeah. whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, that's part of why um, there's an, a, a sort of shift. Right. But I guess I just there's something that feels a little sad to me about that. Yeah. That there's this forfeit of this real this long legacy lineage. Um, in American hospitality, and at the exact moment when it becomes, it starts to become this viable, respected, Mm -hmm. um, profitable Profitable. industry. Um, You see this combination of exodus and reframing.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and exclusion, and the Mm -hmm. exclusion of because I mean, mean, and and there were a lot of illegal tactics going on. I mean, you (sighs) know, I remember coming out of culinary school. Um, for those that you know don't know, I'm, I'm a chef by trade, culinary, culinary Institute of America, graduate three times, culinary degree, bachelor's and master's. Um, and, you know, you, would, you could go do a stage, you know, at a four-star or three-star restaurant here in Manhattan and, you know, work for two weeks just to see if they were going to give you the job. And then at the end of it, I mean, for free, 10 hours mm. a day, you know what I mean, to try to prove your worthiness. Um, and then that's when I kind of got discouraged. And, you know, even once I graduated the CIA, I went to Harlem and introduced myself to Miss Sylvia Woods. Because Definitely. after I learned French cuisine and Italian cuisine and, and German cuisine and charcuterie and all those things, I started looking for the black chefs, went to the library, and they weren't there. They were not mm-hmm. there. So um, for me, this journey started in 1987 professionally. Um, mm-hmm. And it's still something that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, but as you said, you know, th- you know, and as I know why the show is, you know, I created the show is because I want to peel back the layers of that economic, you know, that economic mm. power. Um, mm. And, you know, go to Las Vegas. Do you see any black owned restaurants? Nah, I ate at Jean Georges, My steak was one hundred twelve dollars came with a nice piece of fragois on it. You know what I mean? But yeah. I I don't, I don't see us in Vegas. I don't see us in Aspen, Colorado. I don't see us in Miami. I don't see us in mainstream New York City, Chicago, Atlanta. Um, so you know that loss of history and 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 lineage um, is is a financial problem that um, you know why people like you are so valuable to me because even you know every time I speak to you I learn something new as well so let's let's kind of connect it to uh, we got about 10 more minutes sure. let's now describe um current american cuisine mm-hmm. um and trends versus fads sure. uh and then the connection between um you know our history and our and our current generation of of chefs who I see on YouTube mm-hmm. and and Facebook and Instagram, and they're doing some phenomenal things. Sure. Um, you know, can you speak to that a little bit?
1: So, um, one of the reasons why I started my site, more than just asking better questions, was really about sort of my own feelings of negligence with reference mm-hmm. to cultural cuisine.
0: Let's get a hand um, clap. Accl- let me get some applause on that right there. Negligent. That's right. That's how I felt. That's how everyone should feel. Because if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And if you're silent, it's not gonna help us. Go ahead, Chef.
1: Um, <laughs> um generally speaking, I'm the kind of person, I mean, I don't think that, that especially when it comes to the work of I mean, we know we suit up as chefs for really I mean, there's lots of reasons you choose to do this work, but at the end of the day, you're interested in having something interesting, valuable to say through your technique and you want to present it to someone to consume, right? There's a simple but powerful exchange. And I think my, my questions to myself back then were, what do I have to say? And also, what am I being filled up with in terms of information about who and what I am, right? Mm-hmm. Those questions aren't answered easily, but I think, I think that they are just as important and valuable as like the your technical acumen. And so I think something about the who we say we are is an important question to ask and what information are you are using to, to you, to define that is important. You, you use the word fad and trend, which I think is interesting because I think I guess so I sort of cringe when I hear especially black folks, but folks talk about this moment, um, or, or talk about the attention for the viability of black food ways as a trend. Um, I'm concerned that that's, our thinking because we always Black, right? I think you 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 show up, you are informed by a palate that has cultural references, sort of flavored by experiences and, you know, sort of the food you grew up on, the food you were inspired by and I'm not interested in prescribing to anybody especially anybody Black what they should cook, but we have right here in our own culture a diaspora of delicious ingredients delicious techniques that can inform and make your food better there's something about the way black folks season food there's something about Mm -hmm. the the way in which we approach food culturally that is beautiful delicious and valuable Mm
2: -hmm.
1: right that said i think we have to be as rigorous about our culture and the way we express it to the general public as we are about everything else i watch chefs Black chefs in particular, I'm, I'm I'm really here for everybody Black, so I'll, I'll just stop using the caveat. I'm interested in being in a community with Black people and Black chefs. <laughs> I'm right. so interested when I watch Black chefs or Black, watch my, my colleagues, you know, spend thousands of dollars on modernist cuisine and love to go to, you know, the French laundry and be inspired by, you know, the, the most beautiful and most rarefied air in our industry. But I'm spending the same kind of investment um, in our own culture. What does it look like? I mean, again, I'm not saying everybody needs to go to, you know, sort of, was it the year return was recently? um, in to Ghana, like, you know, the Guyanese people were sort of looking sideways, and all of a sudden, Black people realize that they were also from this place. I'm not just, dis- I don't have a, a, an opinion about what your exploration should look like, mm-hmm. but I'm saying that there's a responsibility I think we have um, to be as rigorous about our cultural presentation as we are about every other aspect of our professional lives. Um, I think it's inspiring when you taste the food of somebody. Who's so serious about the diaspora? Mm-hmm. Look at the James Beard Awards. There's this is young brother Serene Love out of New Orleans, who's just—I mean—he's representing Senegal in New Orleans and making connections that have been. We, we know that you can't taste New Orleans without tasting Senegal.
2: <laughs> you know
1: you can't taste Charleston without tasting uh, Ghana, right? Like we know that there are like very direct links to from, from the U.S. Um, to the continent, to the Caribbean, we can taste the similarity. Mm-hmm. It's our responsibility to be able to make those connections from a culinary standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think that we see young people especially, but chefs who are so serious about that work, the Serenes, the, the Ashley Shanties, the you know the, the Omar Tates, the, the B.J. Dennis's, that you are inspired to think more critically about what culture could look like in every context, right? From your you know jj's at rice bowls at field trip <laughs> to you know i don't know to, to carnola to etan to you know in nigeria like this they're just they're a point of inspiration globally of right. black chefs who are finally seeing resonance and power and value in our own culture and starting there using that as the epicenter of your calling and practice i'm not saying that's the way it has to be i'm saying that's as, as delicious as important as viable and as powerful as it started from anybody else's culture
0: absolutely absolutely
1: and i think we just, which just a really kinetic point now where we also can back that up with content right we can back it up cookbooks and back it up with media content and writing and just i don't know restaurants and chefs who are showing us what that looks like on a plate.
0: Absolutely. Um, Wow, powerful, powerful, powerful knowledge and information. Let me get some applause from the studio. Chef Therese Nelson, we have two minutes. Any last departing words you want to Share with the audience um, how do people contact you? Where can they buy your book? How can they get your services? How can they do business with you?
1: Sure, um, book is forthcoming, I'm shopping it right now. Okay, um, but you please anybody just I'm available at my website by ColemanHistory.com. Email me, reach, reach out there anytime. Um, got some exciting things going on. Um, recent CIA grad Carolyn Hosanna is now writing for my blog. So she's putting out really interesting content weekly. Um, I'm doing two projects now. Um, One is sort of over, but it's sort of come to fruition. Um, I was an advisor um, for the Museum of Food and Drinks, um, Africa slash American exhibit that's on display till Juneteenth at the Africa Center right here in Harlem. So if you are in the New York City area, um, and want a wonderful afternoon of Black food and food history, go up to Africa Center, get your experience, get your shoebox lunch and experience. Um,
0: What's the address? You know, Can you drop that address?
1: Ooh. I don't think I know the address okay. of the African Center but okay. it's right Central Park South the um, the East Side Rotunda um, okay. the roundabout at, 100, at the top of Central Park. So you 110, came 110, of, yep, 110, 110 Street. Yep, 110 Street. Top, top of Museum Mile. Yep, got it. right, right there. Um, but that project has been a five year Labor of Love led by Jessica Harris. Um, so many advisors but it ideated and conceived by a panel of black food historians writers chefs etc is there and beautiful and just want people to experience it and i'm also working with the cia on their worlds of flavor conference keep your eyes open and Mm -hmm. ready because this year we're focused on the food of african diaspora it's going to be a very black town in napa and it's going (laughs) to be wonderful so um those are two things i'm working on most right now and yeah, just check out the website. Keep current. It's lots of good things. There. Put
0: that website out there again one last time.
1: Sure.
0: BlackCulinaryHistory.com. BlackCulinaryHistory.com. You heard it. Check her out. She's phenomenal. We want to thank her for coming to the show. Studio audience, we want to thank you with some applause. So that concludes another edition episode Uh, Behind the numbers, the figures with the restaurant scientists, this would not be possible without our sponsor, Eat Okra. Can I get some applause for Eat Okra? We need everybody to go to the Eat Okra app, download the app, regardless of what type of phone you have, Android or iPhone. Um, You can also visit Instagram, Eat Okra, um, and EatOkra.com. So without any further ado, I want to thank you all again for coming. And until we meet again, my name is Jason Wallace. I'm the restaurant scientist. Power to the people. You are watching a master at work.